Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you are familiar with the Bible, um, great. If you're not, we've printed the text for you on page 8 of your worship guide. Matthew chapter 5, starting just verse 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. This is God's Word. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Would you pray with me again and ask God's blessing on His Word? Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we would pray that You would bless it beyond our wildest imagination. You who are able by your Holy Spirit to do abundantly more than we ask or could even imagine, work in us today. Drive us out of ourselves. Grant us repentance. If the broken heart is the cradle of Jesus Christ, then break us that we might delight in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're Joining us this Sunday, we are uh, in the middle of a series, the, kind of the beginning of the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Probably Jesus' most famous sermon. Even if you're not a Christian, you are familiar in some way the fact that Jesus preached this really important sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. You might say this was his first hundred days in office where he's laying down the most important things that will characterize his kingdom. He's come on the public scene with his baptism, he's begun his ministry in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. He's generated a large crowd, and so he sits down. The crowd stands around him, and he begins to teach them. And he starts with what we call the Beatitudes, which is Latin for blessing, because each of these nine Beatitudes begin with blessed. Now, we said last week that blessed is much richer um, in the Bible, then we, term, then we technically use it in, in English. Not since we say blessing, I've had a blessed day, which means good things are going on. Well, in the Bible, blessed and blessing means something a lot more significant. It, we said last week that it means approving delight. So when God said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, he's saying, I approve with delight those who are poor in spirit. Well, This week we're going to camp out on the fourth beatitude here in verse 6. Blessed with approving delight. These are the ones that God approves and delights in. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now the promise here, they shall be satisfied, should be something that we hear in our hearts perk up. I mean, satisfaction is the most basic human Need It is most necessary and is the thing that eludes most of us. You might think that food and shelter are the most basic needs of human life. That's Maslow's hierarchy. That's what he tells us. Food and shelter is the bottom. It's the most basic need of every human being. But we want more than just to be fed and have uh, someplace to stay. So... We just don't want food. We want more food, and we want better food. We don't just want a house. We want a a bigger and a better house. 
Our hearts take even the most basic of our needs and turn them into a constant search for satisfaction. So we do this with our relationships too. Our careers, our children, we're constantly in the process of of taking good things, turning them into ultimate things with the goal of finding satisfaction for our hearts. Our hearts are like Pac-Man. They're always eating, never growing, never being satisfied. And oftentimes we feel like that's life. I'm in my constant search for satisfaction. There are these ghosts that are haunting me and chasing me all the time. And so Jesus makes this promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they are the ones who will be satisfied. Those who want righteousness will be the ones who find satisfaction. So we need to ask this first, though, don't we? What is righteousness? I mean, if hungering and thirsting after righteousness is the key to having our souls satisfied, then it's worth a little time to define our terms. Because I don't want to assume that we're all on the same page when it comes to righteousness. We're all coming from very different places. Some of us are reconnecting with the church after a long time away, and that word might be traumatic for some of you. You might have in your mind a a self-righteous pastor with his finger out pointed, scolding you and telling you all the things that you're doing wrong. When you hear righteousness, that might be the thing that comes to mind. That's traumatic. You might be new to the church, and you have a picture of some fundamentalist holding up a sign with venom and hate and think that's what Jesus means when he says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. A lot of us here the word righteousness and begin to shrink into ourselves because we know that we just don't measure up. And that's because we intuitively know that righteousness is a standard that we don't measure up to. And that's, that's not the worst thing to feel that. In fact, the hunger and thirst, you have to start with the fact that I have a need. I am not where I need to be. And so when we hear righteousness and we begin to intuitively feel I don't measure up, it is because righteousness has to do with the law. The word comes from the courtroom where one is measured by the law. For instance, if you are accused of a crime that you didn't commit and the evidence is presented that you actually obeyed that law. Not only did you not commit that and are innocent, but you obeyed the law. Then you would, in the courtroom, be declared righteous. So sin in the Bible is always defined in reference to God's laws. And uses two different metaphors. One, from the world of archery. Sin, missing the mark. You didn't hit the bullseye. That's the standard that you're measured by perfect bullseye. The other one is from the world of building, where one measures the line and finds himself lacking. Righteousness, in this sense, is a right relationship that's been legally verified. You've measured up to the law. You have always done what is right. Righteousness and innocence are different things. Righteousness, innocence, means you didn't do anything wrong. Righteousness means you've done everything right. Innocence is a blank rap sheet. Righteousness is a perfect record. And so imagine this picture. God 
is declared righteous. God is brought into a courtroom and his law is read. And with each requirement, he says, I have fully conformed to that. And as a result, he is declared to be the righteous one. No charges of wrongdoing will stick to God because as the psalmist says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Or as David declares in Psalm 119, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. God is the righteous one. He's righteous in all his ways. In all his ways, he is perfect. There is not a flaw in his being or in his actions. In this way, righteousness throughout the Bible is often in reference to God's covenant. He is a covenant-keeping God, a God who keeps all of his promises. And so the righteous one, is measured by the law of God as an expression of his righteousness. The one who is righteous has measured himself not against others, but against God himself and found himself to be perfect in all the ways that God is perfect. The righteous one is able to say, I am exactly like God. He's the righteous measuring stick. His laws are an expression of his righteousness. The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness has to start with measuring themselves against God. I mean, Jesus says this so very dramatically a few verses later in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Here's the standard. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is another side to the righteousness of God that we've got to talk about. The justice of God is also an expression of his righteousness, particularly against sin. A righteous God, in order to be righteous, must punish those who break his law. His wrath in this way is an expression of his righteousness. And it's often described in the Bible in these burning terms. Like when fire came down from Sodom and Gomorrah for a whole host of sins. God was punishing them for their law-breaking, for their lack of righteousness. And it's a broad range of sins that's listed in the Bible for why Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by his righteous wrath. Sexual immorality, covetous greed, neglect of the poor. All provoke his righteousness. Sometimes his wrath is turned against his own people for abandoning his covenant. Second Kings, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which he was angered and kindled against Judah, his own people, for breaking his law. His wrath is unbearable and consuming. Behold, the day the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. His righteous wrath should also cause us to feel uncomfortable. And maybe where you're at today, you're just like, man, this is, he's talking about wrath. This is not what I want to hear. I'm setting you up. I'm causing us to hunger and thirst by looking at God's righteousness and see ourselves lacking. But you, you, O Lord, are to be feared who can stand before you once your anger is roused. So if you find yourself saying, uh-oh, God's like that, then I can't measure up. 
then Jesus says to you, you are on the pathway to satisfaction because you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The hunger and thirst for righteousness is to want God himself. I want you. I want you in all of your righteousness. I want you who are the righteous one to become the sole delight of my hungering soul. But in order for you to draw near to God, he must be dealt with in his righteousness. And that's what creates the tension. I want God, but it's scary. He is scary because of my sin. Good. Good. If that's where you're at, good. If you see your failings before a righteous God, here's what Jesus says. There's a promise attached to each of these beatitudes. It's actually couched in a promise. These are the blessed ones, those who are hungering, thirsting for righteousness. And here's the promise. You'll be satisfied. And so keep that promise in mind. Don't just look at your lacking and your sin and God's wrath and despair. Don't look at what you lack in order to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Look at his promises too. His promises to satisfy your hunger. Now follow Jesus' logic here. This is the fourth beatitude, right? He didn't just drop this as a bomb. He builds up to it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a pattern to human flourishing. Blessed These are the ones that God has approving delight in. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see what God is saying here? He's He's not saying, look, here's what you need to do. You need to work on yourself. You need to to build up a better record for yourself. This is what he's saying here. He says, look, if you found yourself poor in spirit, and then you find yourself disgusted by that, mourning over it, you've kind of come to a place where you're meek because you don't see anything good in you, and then you're at a place where you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And I'll tell you what, I'll satisfy that for you. I mean, this is what the gospel says to us. In Christ... God will do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the gospel says to us, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness because you see the evil in your own heart, then this is what God will do. God will make you like him so that he might be your satisfaction. He loves righteousness so much. It so burns in his soul to see righteousness that he works to make a sinful people a righteous people. So if you got your Bible, look in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 here. I had a plans to really talk a lot about God changing our position and then changing our person and then changing the hope for a righteous new heavens and new earth. But I didn't think we wanted to be here for the whole hour that that sermon was going to take. So we're just going to talk about God changing our position, our record before him. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, 
that he's not ashamed of. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Two things to notice from this. One, righteousness is received. God's righteousness is on display in the gospel. It's revealed and it is to be received by faith. That means someone else works, I get the benefit. I earn a wage, I deserve it. I receive a gift. And even in the language on the Sermon on the Mount, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness receive something. Shall be satisfied is a passive tense, which means someone else is doing all the work on me. I just receive what somebody else does. And second, it's received by faith. Faith goes outside of oneself. If I have faith in my team winning the Super Bowl. It doesn't mean I'm going to sit on the field and play. It's someone else is doing the work. I get the benefits. Faith always goes outside of itself to something greater. And in this sense, faith takes hold of Jesus. And when it does, God takes the righteousness of Jesus and makes it ours. And in doing so, his righteousness is on display. He does this by changing our position for him. God loves righteousness so much that his son was righteous in all that he did. It pleased Jesus, the son of God, to be righteous in all his actions. He was the curve breaker. If God could could grade on a curve, which he can't because he's righteous, but if he could, Jesus broke the curve. He was perfectly righteous in all that he did. If the law of God is summarized in this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which just kind of levels all of us, exalts Jesus, because he did just that. He was the only one with the righteous record. And he did so not simply to show us the way of righteousness, though he did that. He lived a righteous life so that he could give us his record, and we could be counted as righteous before a righteous God. So imagine this scenario. This is how the righteousness of God is displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Imagine a man who committed a murder coming before the judge for his sentencing. The guilt was conclusive. The evidence damning. It only took minutes for the jury to come back with a unanimous conclusion. This man had murdered another. He was guilty. Now he's standing before the judge to be sentenced. And the judge that must sentence this man for his crime, it was the judge's son who was murdered. His wrath is fierce because he loved what had been killed. The law is not just some abstraction for him. He hated the one who had devoured what he had adored. But... Here's the wrinkle. The one who murdered his son was his son too. The judge had to fulfill both the righteous requirements of the law and also his love was at stake. What what would he do? And so this is what he does. He, He puts off the sentencing for a while. He holds back his judgment just for a season and in the meantime he comes up with a plan this is what we'll do my wife and I are going to have another son 
son was born with one purpose in mind. Be what your murderous brother was not. Live the life he should have lived. And so the younger son does. He lives such an exemplary life with the father's self. The father invested in him all that he had. And the younger son amassed a fortune, garnered fame, adored his father. And his father adored him because of his life, exemplary life. He had become the apple of the father's eye. Now imagine it's time again to sentence the guilty son. And so he does this. He exchanges the record of the two. The younger son took the murderous son's record, and the murderous son took the account of the righteous son, and the faithful son was killed. And the murderous son is celebrated. In that one move, the judge's righteousness is on display, both in judgment and in saving. And so this is what Paul says. God, this is God's work. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But look, if this is going to delight your soul with satisfaction This is what you must do. You must first despair of your own attempts to build your identity on any other pathway but the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that is received by faith. I mean, if the pathway to satisfaction is to be that you're constantly hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then you've got to first despair of your own attempts to build your worth on your works, whether it's your career achievements or your children's achievements or the fact that you're not like this other person over here. You've got to despair of those if you're going to be satisfied by Jesus Christ and his received righteousness. See, the Christian doesn't just repent of all the things they've done wrong. The Christian has to learn to repent of all the wrong reasons for doing the right things. For trying to build, build my identity on what I've done. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. It's hard for religious people. We like to build our identity on the fact that we're doing things good or better than others. That's why Jesus has such harsh words for the religious leaders. That's why he just starts this out. Look, the rest of the Beatitudes... The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is not about you doing right things to make yourself right with God. You've got to hunger and thirst for righteousness before you'll ever be able to do right things for the glory of the righteous God. Whitney Houston was at the top of her stardom when she was filming The Bodyguard. She was the biggest star in the world. Hundreds of millions of people adored her. Very few criticisms of Whitney Houston. She was beautiful and had a gorgeous voice and was so well-liked. Nations 
hundreds, imagine this, hundreds of millions of people adored her, nations of people adored her, but her co-star in the movie, Kevin Costner, tells a grim story of a woman who was constantly asking three questions. Behind the scenes, this is what she was longing for. Am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? Will they like me? And you see what what Jesus is saying here is the question, am I good enough, am I pretty enough, will they like me, is now answered by a righteous God who's perfect in all his ways, whose wrath must punish sin. The question, am I good enough, am I pretty enough, will they like me? God responds back, if you are in Christ and have received his righteousness, then yes. But Whitney Houston just couldn't rest because she didn't have that question answered. And so Costner tells the story of one day after her professional makeup artist, right? This is a person whose job it is to apply makeup and make one answer the question, am I good enough? Am I pretty enough? She didn't like it. It wasn't satisfying for her. These questions are haunting her. And so she shows up on the set Makeup just streaming down her face, just in streaks. She's unable to see it, how just grotesque she had become. And so Costner says, I had to turn her around and cause her to look at herself in the mirror. And when she did, she gasped. What had happened was she had taken all of the professional makeup artists off and put on her own. And put it on so heavy and so thick and in so inappropriate ways that it could not stand the heat of the lights. It just melted. Stop trying to build a righteousness for yourself. It's just a wax nose that will melt in the fires of judgment. Instead, look at yourself in the mirror. On a daily basis, put sticky notes on your mirror, on your dash, on your screen, whatever you need to do it. It says this, I am righteous enough because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm good enough in Jesus Christ to satisfy a righteous God. And in the words of Stuart Smalley, doggone it, the righteous God loves me delights in me approves of me and then the God who is righteous will become the satisfaction that is so elusive let's pray Father we um, we need to hear this over and over again We need you to satisfy us. Satisfy us. We're hungry people. Let us not despair of hope, but despair of finding that hope in ourselves. Make us hungry and thirsty constantly over and over again. May we, may we grow even to hunger and thirst more for righteousness that Jesus himself and his righteousness given to us might satisfy us, create a hunger in us that he alone is big enough to fill. And then remind us of your great love. 
and our righteous standing before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.